Hey y'all, welcome back to part two here on the Friday, May 27th, 2022 edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Uh, getting this part two up a little late in the day, but uh, really, really busy day on uh, just the podcast writing and everything else front. It's just been a busy Friday here in Knoxville, Tennessee, but uh, Chandler Rome of the Houston Chronicle is on this edition of the podcast, so hope you guys enjoyed our conversation uh, on all things Houston Astros, a little bit of college baseball talk to start things out. He's an LSU guy, me being a Tennessee guy, we talked about college baseball and uh, Jay Johnson at LSU, and you know, we didn't know at the time when we recorded this, but LSU and Tennessee uh, face off tonight on uh, on uh, on the SEC tournament front, so very excited for that to see how that unfolds. Tennessee, LSU, and the SEC tournament down there in Hoover, Alabama. Uh, don't forget, folks, you can watch this program and uh, keep up with all our videos and clips and all that good stuff on YouTube.com. Type in the Chase Thomas Podcast. Like, subscribe, do all the good stuff. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Chase double underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Email the program at Chase Thomas Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, go check out the homepage, chasemuspodcast.com. Subscribe to my writing. Wrote about Tennessee's victory over Vanderbilt uh, yesterday and uh, what happened there in Tennessee's 10 to 1 victory over the Commodores. You can read that at sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Type in your email. Never miss any of my written content. Become a subscriber today. And uh, yeah. All right. Time for part two here on the Friday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Uh, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate. All right, it. we're I back here on the Chase Thomas podcast, where I am now joined by Chandler Rome, who covers the first place Houston Astros out there in the AL West. Chandler, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Are you? Uh, I know you got your start with the the collegiate beat, and you had the LSU baseball coverage got my Tennessee stuff on it ostensibly Tennessee will be playing Vanderbilt at some point uh this week uh who's to say the SEC tournament might last for three and a half weeks we'll see but uh if rain does not cooperate anytime soon but uh do you miss the collegiate beat do you do you still watch a lot of college baseball or no I do actually um I've got I've got a good bit of connections in the college baseball world you know Mm. um, Nolan Kane who's Texas A&M's recruiting coordinator was an assistant in LSU one of my favorite people Mm -hmm. um Paul Maneri coached LSU my entire tenure covering them he's a great man um I covered Brad Bohannon's first year at Alabama uh for a newspaper over there and you, you know just by virtue of just who the Astros have drafted in recent years you know I've, I've had great conversations with Tony Vitello before. Um, mm. he's, he's amongst one of my favorite people to interview, and I've only interviewed him two or three times, but he's so candid, and I, I know that's sometimes to his detriment, but for a reporter, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I do miss uh, I do miss kind of the, some parts of college baseball, but I think once you get to the once you get to professional ball, once you get to watch you know MLB on a daily basis, you kind of realize that they're kind of playing two different games. Just just given the what level do you mean? Of- yeah, just given like the level. I mean, obviously the wood bats and the and the metal yeah. bats are two different, or aluminum bats are two different things. But just the way the games are managed, um, and just the skill level. To be honest with you, I mean, like I, I've watched a few LSU games this year just because um, that's where I went to school. I went to right. LSU. I'm from Baton Rouge, um, and I keep up with them. And you know, they've got two legitimate candidates to go one one in the next two drafts, and Jacob Berry and Dylan Cruz. And like watching those two guys play. And then watching like the rest of that team play, it's just like you can just tell that they're on two different stratospheres. Mm. Now, when you 
put Jacob Berry and Dylan Cruz in like double A AA or triple A, they're going to be kind of on a level playing field. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. You know, some teams have like Tennessee's got a good club, but mm-hmm. you know, of that club, how many of those guys are going to be everyday big leaguers? Like one, maybe one or two. Uh, well, I mean, pitchers is different, but I mean, I think if you throw Joyce will be somewhere, they'll figure it out. Joyce in the flamethrower. He's going to be it. Jordan Beck will probably be an everyday Gilbert. I don't know. Lipscomb, I think has everyday potential. Um, I guess we'll see with blade. If he's an everyday star, uh, I just, I don't know. I think there's, there's a handful. There's a handful. Yeah, but I guess what I'm getting at is like the depth. Like, yeah, like, like that. Wait, hold on. That... Are we sure this year's Tennessee baseball team cannot beat the Cincinnati Reds in a three game series? Are we sure? I don't know, man. But I mean, but but look, like that this this Tennessee team, right? We're 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 talking about them as like maybe one of the best college baseball teams ever. Like, mm-hmm. depend, like regardless of what happens in the next three weeks, like just what they did in the SEC and everything, and, and still we're only talking about like a handful of big league guys. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just a depth thing, and it's just the way the games are managed. Like, I mean, I saw Jay Johnson the other day. You know, the Rays would do this, but like I saw Jay Johnson the other day, LSU's coach. He pulled his starting pitcher after one pitch. He faced. Mm-hmm. He, he put him in he, – he was going to do a lefty-righty sort of matchup thing, wanted to throw Ole Miss off. Um, mm. Kid threw one pitch, gave up a double, and pulled him and went with the lefty to face the next three lefties. Like, that, that like obviously, with the three-batter rule, you can't do that in big league ball. But, like, yeah. I mean, that's just different. And, and, like, the way that you have to manage and just, like, the scholarship limits and the – Well, that might be going the, away. And the lack of coach – the lack of just full-time coaches. I mean, it's – it's kind of a travesty what uh, mm. college baseball coaches have to go through. You know, it's kind of weird. Um, you know, here in Houston, you know, Lance Berkman and Jose Cruz Jr. both recently got college baseball jobs. One, Jose mm. Cruz is at Rice and Lance Berkman's at HBU. And neither of those teams were any good this year. Now, now, granted, neither of those situations were great that they inherited. But the thought going through my head the whole time has been like, why would these guys want to coach college baseball? It is an unforgiving grind. Like you have two paid assistants, you have 11.7 scholarships. You've got to recruit these kids starting at 12 years old with no money to give them. You've got to go up against the big league draft for these two guys. You've got to go up against power five schools. It's, it's like, I I have all the respect in the world for college baseball coaches because it is such an unforgiving, it's an unforgiving occupation and, you know, only a few, even those at the elite level, like Chris Lamonis at Mississippi State, who's getting, you know, whatever resources he wants, mm. you know, Tony Vitello, you know, guys, guys that are getting a ton of resources, you know, it's still hard on them because they're not getting any more scholarship money. You know, Tim Corbin can work around and get a little more money here and there and guys like that. But like, it's a grind for everyone. And even when you mm. make it to the top, you can't stop working. So, um, I guess long rambling story short, you know, I do miss kind of the intricacies of college baseball, but it's a much cleaner product to watch at the big league level. It seems like the games move smoother. I think, I wonder if there's like a, if uh, we could find somebody at Fangraphs. Uh, shout out Fangraphs. I need you to do like a full on uh, study as the average length of a college baseball game versus major league baseball game. Cause I feel like it's an hour difference most of the time. Well, this Jay Johnson era at LSU, um, he's like I again. I haven't watched a ton of their games. Just reading, like, yeah, he's making mound visits every. Like, there's no mound Oof. visit limit in there. He's making mound visits like every other pitch. Like, he's using eight and nine pitchers, and part of that's just by necessity because they don't have a Nola or a Gosman or a yeah. or any of those sort of ace frontline guys. So he's having to mix it up, and it's a 
it's kind of slowed the game down to a trickle. And yeah. I know that's uh, I, LSU fans love when they win and they're winning and they're a top four seed and they're probably going to host a regional. But like when you don't win and you play an unappealing brand, it could go it could go pretty poorly. Yeah, and those weekday, those Tuesday games are just a slog, man. Tennessee just like Belmont's a good team, and they came in just eighteen nothing, just obliterated them. And those Tuesday ones, they go for a while, and yeah, uh, it's just like what a waste I, of time. I don't miss midweek games. Yeah, they're the worst. Fans. I don't miss. Can I curse on this? Yeah, I don't miss fans bitching that they lose midweek games when yeah. like, they're throwing the twenty seven when they're throwing like the thirty fifth guy on the thirty five man scholarship roster mm. in the eighth inning and. He gives up the lead to a team like a middle of the road, like in-state team that's playing this game as if it's game seven of the World Series. Like mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter, but fans get so lit up. So I, I do not miss covering midweek games. Yeah. What did LSU fans, how did they feel about Tennessee fans? Because it feels like people are really just, this Tennessee team has ticked off so many people and everyone's just waiting for us to to go down in flames in I mean, uh, Omaha or the regionals. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty disconnected from yeah. Well, I'm I saying mean, back just, in your day. Uh, I mean, they were, I mean, no offense, Tennessee was irrelevant when I was there. Um, I mean, and, and a lot of, you know, I believe that was the end of the Todd Rayleigh era into the Dave Serrano experiment. Yeah. I think that was when I was there. Okay. I mean, they were, they were kind of a real, I remember Luke Hochaver for, mm-hmm. for, for a hot minute, but other than that, like, Baseball wise, Tennessee was kind of irrelevant. Um, mm. so, so I don't know, but I, I was I was kind of quietly hoping that they would hire ten, that that LSU would hire Tony Vitello just because I was nervous about it. Just because you know, I think the one thing about LSU baseball fans, I compared a lot. I compare the program and I compare the following a lot to Kentucky basketball. Hmm. It's like they've been good forever, and they. A lot of their fans live in the past. Like they think that Skip, they think that Skip Bertman did no wrong, and Skip Bertman was operating under the same restraints that everyone has now, which is just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fan base, to a large extent, is a lot of older people. It's a lot mm-hmm. of older people that sit on their hands and that wail and gnash teeth when, you know, they lose a midweek game or they lose a series, and they they can't lose. They leave, they lose sight of the broader perspective and. You know, I've never been to Rupp Arena, but I've kind of heard that that's the same way there. It's not particularly intimidating environment. It's just a lot of old people that have had season tickets for 40 years just kind of sitting there watching what's Mm. going on. And it's a lot of it with LSU baseball. And I kind of thought that LSU baseball needed a – they were stale. They kind of need it. They kind of need an asshole. Like they kind of needed that Tony Vitello like like person to come in and kind of shake some people up and – you know, get the students out again. I mean, the student section at LSU baseball is just non-existent. Like, they they don't get a younger, like, rowdy crowd there. It's a mm. lot of buddy-duddy old people that you know that say you know they're fire the hitting coach when they don't get when they don't get six hits in an inning, or you know, it's a bunch of like fifty-year-olds that coach their kids in travel ball ten years ago and think they know what's going on. Like it's, it's not a great, you know, scene, but um, I thought Tony Vitello could come in and kind of shake it up, but I, I, I like the Jay Johnson hire. I think he's done a pretty good job so far. Um, do you see a lot of, when you're talking to guys and on the MLB level and the Astros and stuff, do they still like talk about college baseball and like, look at it fondly? Is that, is that well, something Bregman, you Bregman does. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've covered Bregman since he was 18, since he was 18, a freshman at LSU and he, he mm-hmm. follows them pretty close and he was, 
he was informed. I'll put it to you that way on the LSU coaching search. Um, Interesting. I don't. I don't want to say he he had like a big hand in it, but they, they turned to him for advice, and he, he openly says that they turned to him for some advice. And you know, some guys in there, Ryan Stanix in the Astros clubhouse, he played at Arkansas. Mm. Like he, he, I've talked to him about Dave Van Horn a few times. Just mm. nothing like nothing like in depth or anything. But also, these guys are so, you know, these guys are so obsessed uh, you know, they're so in the grind of the season that they can't really pay attention too much like jason castro and i were talking about sanford a couple of days mm. ago. it's like yeah i just know like i just every time i open twitter i follow them on twitter and i see they win like i, I couldn't <laughs> tell you who's on the team i couldn't tell you if they have any draft prospects but i know they've won a bunch mm. and he's like and he's a pretty you know ardent follower of stanford so um i i think you know it these guys don't forget where they came from, but they've got, you know, kind of bigger fish to fry, I think, especially when they're in season. Who do you enjoy talking to most on this current Astros team? Um, it depends on kind of what you're talking about. Like, I think hmm. Bregman probably explains hitting and explains kind of his mechanics better than just about anybody. Um, you know, I, I think if I need a, if I need a technical baseball question, like, Hey, why is your launch angle this? Or like, hmm. why are you not like, I go to Bregman for that because he can explain it. You know, I may not even understand it the way he explains it, but he can like, you know, get down to a really micro level and really kind of tell you what's going on. Um, I think Justin Verlander's really insightful. Um, you know, on big picture topics, kind of, you know, he's a consummate pro. Kind of the, mm-hmm. you know, he when the cameras turn on, he's really really good, and he can be good off camera too. And you know, he's when he wants to talk about something, and when you show interest, you know, he he's really good. Um, but this is this is a decent clubhouse for for insights, and you know, it, it's always kind of the the secret in baseball writing is like always make friends with the catchers because mm. they know what's going on. And you know, Martin mm. Maldonado and Jason Castro are, are two great guys. You know, Castro went to Stanford, very well spoken, very cerebral. And then, you know, Maldonado's good because this Astros rotation has a lot of um, Latin player. They, I think four mm. fifths of their rotation is Latin is Latin American, and you know, I think. I'm trying to think two of them speak English, but with an interpreter and mm. the other two speak no English. So it can be a little bit difficult to, I mean, I can have, you know, through interpreter conversations, I can get kind of down to the bottom of what's going on with them, but I can go to Maldonado who is bilingual and who can mm. maybe explain it and distill it a little bit better than they could. So, um, and then, you know, obviously relievers are kind of the, they're the odd species of, of big league clubhouses. You know, they, um, they're great guys and they're great. Most of them are excellent guys, but you know, they're very superstitious, you know, huh. they, they don't want to talk when things are going well. Um, it, it's hard to talk to a reliever when he's pitching well, cause he doesn't want to disrupt his rhythm. But hmm. then on the other end, you know, when a reliever blows a game or blows a save, they get upset when we ask to speak with them. And it's like, well, you can't have it both ways. Like you've got, yeah. like if you, I, I want to talk to you when things are going well, and I'm going to have to talk to you when things are going bad. So we're going to just have to kind of find a happy medium. But I like, I mean, it's a, I think the Astros just in general, the last four or five years have certainly developed a reputation just outside of Houston for kind of who they are and what they do. But I, I think inside it's, it's a really good you know clubhouse for me, just as far as, insights and and people you know kind of explaining the game to someone who thinks he knows what's going on who do you think's the most misunderstood astro probably altuve um probably altuve um i I, look i i the one thing i i always tell you know young writers or young reporters or media people is like Mm. you never like never assume you know these people Mm. like 
I mean, I've I've covered Alex Bregman for, I mean, most of his baseball, most of his like affiliated baseball career, and I would never. And I I know his family. I've texted with his, his. I mean, I I, I have relationships with him. I would mm-hmm. never claim to know him. I don't know what he does when he leaves the clubhouse. I don't know what he does at home. And I'm not trying to say he's doing anything bad. I'm not trying to say he's doing anything. I, I, we don't know these guys. We mm. get a very limited portrait of these guys from the access that we get with them. Mm. So I want that to kind of be the overriding thing here. Like even when I'm from what I'm about to say, you know, I don't know what Jose Altuve does when he goes home. I don't know, you know, everything I've heard and everything I've seen, he seems like a fantastic father. He seems like a good person. He seems like he cares for his family and cares for people. But like, he's also manifested this like reputation as like this villain as like mm-hmm. the guy that's like um, just the heel and just this, you know, face of the sign stealing scandal when, mm-hmm. you know, every, anybody you talk to from that 2017 team, whether you believe them or not, they, they say that Altuve didn't use the scheme. That he, hmm. that he became very vocal and yelled at when they did try to bang a trash can during his at-bat. He came back one time and yelled at the people that did it and said, never do that again. Hmm. Um, now, that doesn't absolve him because he was a part of the team. He won the MVP that year. Yeah, We'll never know how much he benefited. I mean, he says he didn't do it, but we can never actually like crystallize like, who benefited the most, who didn't benefit, things like that. So, But, but I do think Altuve, just by virtue of his his prominence and his face, you know, mm-hmm. he has become like the face of this scandal. And I, I just don't think, Do you think that, he knows that. Oh, I know he knows it. I know. Mm-hmm. It. Um, and, and I just don't think that is, um, I don't think that's warranted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he certainly shares blame. Everyone that was on the team shares blame because they all could have done something to stop it. They all could have spoken up and they've lost the benefit of the doubt just going forward in their careers and this is a stain that they're going to have to wear for as for however long they play baseball. Mm. Um, but I think to pigeonhole Altuve as the guy that is like the the big like ringleader, the, the guy, the the face of this scandal, I think that's a little misunderstood because you know in all of my interactions with him and you know observing him for five years now and um, everything I've heard from people that know him, um, he he is the opposite of like a dirty cheater like he, mm-hmm. he he's got two young girls at home he's got a wife he's got a family that he's very close to he does a lot of charitable things outside of the public eye um he signs for fans very regularly like he's very judicious with his time very generous um again this all with the caveat i, I we don't i don't claim to know him i don't claim to know these guys but um i, I think if there's one that's probably misunderstood it's him what's the biggest difference between uh click and lunhow uh, well, Click has a little more human side to him. Hmm. Um, Jeff, Jeff Luno, um, and, and this was, um, and this was outlined in Rob Manfred's, um, investigation to the team that was released in, uh, 2000, January, 2020, you know, mm-hmm. that Jeff Luno cultivated an insular culture that, um, that, that didn't work well with people. Mm-hmm. And, and Jeff, um, Jeff did not have, I, I don't think the, the humanity that James click has. Hmm. Like, if you talk to James click, like it feels like you're having like a, a conversation with like another human being. It, it hmm. feels like he values like your feelings and he fa- values you more as more than just in my case, a reporter or as a player and in, in, in their case, like more than a number on a spreadsheet, more than hmm. like a piece of this grand puzzle that he's putting together. 
Um, and look, it worked for Jeff Luno. I mean, like the the reason, like Jeff Luno deserves a huge amount of credit for the for where the Astros are right now as a franchise, mm-hmm. the stability and everything that they have, just the sustainability, and that their windows open. But you know, the way he went about it um, certainly rubbed people the wrong way. Um, he did not have a lot of friends in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason he's not back in baseball, and there's a reason that I don't think he'll ever be back. Um, I don't think he wants to be back in baseball, but I think, you know, the minute he got suspended and fired, I I think the industry-wide consensus was that you wouldn't see him back in baseball. And I think that's certainly going to be the case. And part of it is because, you know, he he did alienate himself um, from a lot of people, from a Mm. lot of people in the game, from a lot of important people in the game. And then uh, I think he kind of sealed his fate when he sued the, when he sued uh, the Astros and claimed that, Crane and Rob Manford entered into a collusion to get him fired. I think that pretty much sealed his fate that he'll probably never work in baseball again. But um, yeah, I just think James mm. certainly click. They, they come from the same like analytical sort of background. Mm. Like, click comes from the Tampa Bay Rays who are the most analytical bunch in baseball. And, you know, um, I think they're, they think a lot of the same way about baseball, you know, click has added more scouts um, that Luno purged and hmm. you know, he, he does, he feels, he thinks that the human element's a little more important that being at the ballpark that these scouts seeing guys in person is a little more important than Jeff did. But um, I think in some ways they're pretty similar, but I think just personality and kind of the culture that they cultivate in the front office and just things I hear from people that have worked for both men, um, they couldn't be m- much more different uh, just in the office and kind of the culture they cultivated. Was there ever a chance that Correa was going to sign a long-term deal with the Astros? Not long term, um, not long term. Uh, they don't do that. They've they've never um, the longest free agent deal under in Jim Crane's ownership. The longest free agent deal they've ever given to a domestic free agent is four years and fifty two million dollars to Josh Reddick. Why is um, that? They were uh, because they don't believe that. They they just hmm. they they have never believed in under Crane under Luno and now I mean it's kind of bearing fruits under Click that they've just never believed in the long term deal. Um, they are now where the conversation could, is interesting is like the deal that Correa ended up signing with the twins is mm. one that the Astros, that is like their calling card. Like mm. if Justin Verlander, a two year, $66 million extension a couple of years ago, the $33 million AV mm. um, Michael Brantley's on a two year, $32 million deal right now. Granted, those are like smaller and I mean, but low few years, big AAV, that is what the Astros do. Like mm. that is the, like, and that's what we, that's what I wrote. That's what everyone wrote kind of all lockout and dragging in spring training is if the Ashers are going to get this done. It's going to have to be a short term, big money deal because mm. um, that's all they do. But it was well known that Correa wanted 10 years for 300 million. And he still wants that. And he's going to probably get it after he opts out this year with the twins. Um, but it, it does, you know, kind of raise the question, why couldn't the Astros do what the Twins did? And a lot of the talk has been about they didn't like the opt-outs in there, mm. um, which I guess that's their prerogative. Um, they, I mean, we're two months into it, so we, they can't claim any victories, but Jeremy Pena has been playing very well. At well, that's what I was going to ask. They just know what they had in Pena. Well, again, it's two months. Mm. Um, I, I Every fan that's saying the same thing – everybody that all, I was like, check with me in September, check with mm. me. In Let's look at these guys wars in October. Um, you know, they, everyone freaked out yesterday because Jeremy Pena got a day off and mm. they had to bring up that, you know, Jeremy Pena has never played more than 109 games in any professional season. Mm. Uh, that was in 2019. 
So he's barely like he had a wrist injury in last season that limited him to about 40 minor league games. Nobody mm-hmm. played minor league baseball in 2020. He's like barely played baseball the last two years. Hmm. And now they're going to throw him into a situation where they want him to play 145, 150 games plus the playoffs. Like, how's he going to hold up? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's a big story in the second half. Cause like, look, he has outperformed any expectations that people had for him. He is, he's playing really well by war. He's their best player. Mm-hmm. He's, he's made more contact than I thought he would make the power. I always knew was there. And then, you know, the defense, that was kind of his calling card. Um, but I mean, is he going to be able to sustain this? Like, how, how is he going to be able to sustain this into September and October? I think it's a huge storyline in the second half. Um, so right now it looks fine. You know, mm. right now it's like, yeah, they knew what they had in Jeremy Pena. But, I mean, I think you have to – it's way too early to jump to like, oh, that's why they didn't sign him because they knew that this kid was the next coming. Well, we don't know that this kid's the next coming. Like, he's – it just so happens that he has started better than every other American League rookie, which is commendable, certainly. Um, mm. But, but I, I kind of want to pump the brakes, maybe wait until September or October. And look, if he keeps this going, then they do deserve a ton of credit for knowing what they had in him and and not uh, and not, you know, maybe getting Correa back. Are they OK with uh, the situation in center field? Um, I think if there is a an avenue to improve the club at the deadline, I think outfield is certainly i mean it's the only place they're first yeah. base but they're not gonna i i think yuli guriel is kind of no matter how poorly he hits mm. which his decline has been pretty precipitous just as someone that won a batting title last year um i think yuli guriel's kind of safe i mean you want a gold mm. glove his defense hasn't faltered um i, I think they're gonna but they do need another bat i think they're mm. a bat short you know especially like what we were just talking about with pena like what if he drops off in the second half then you've got a six then you've got, for all intents and purposes, a five-man lineup because if Guriel keeps this going, he's a below-average hitter. Yeah. So, I mean, center field would be the area that they could stand to upgrade the most, but, like, I don't know what center fielders are going to be available. The center field free agent market was not robust this offseason. They, I mean, yeah. they were in on Starling Marte, but... Can I interest you in an Adam Duvall? <laughs> Um, I mean, look, the, the, he haunted them in the World Series last year. There you go. As did every, uh, as did every other trade acquisition mm-hmm. that the Braves made. Um, but I, I think if there's an avenue that they're going to improve the club, it's got to be offense. And, again, we're, we're talking on May 26th. You know, they could, heaven forbid, injuries, but they could have two pitchers blow out and they could, yeah. they could need a pitcher. Who knows? But we're talking on May 26th, the area to improve the club is probably they need a bat. And mm-hmm. without knowing who's available, um, I, it's tough to, for me to say that they have to go center field. You know, they could go get a corner outfielder and move Kyle Tucker to center field. Um, they could do that if, if there's a good corner bat available. But, Byron Reynolds, I mean. You but you see, they him. don't have the farm system for that. They don't yeah. have the farm system to go get Brian Reynolds. You know, mm-hmm. the, there's like this fantasy if Juan Soto's available. Like, <laughs> it's just fan, it's like they don't have the farm system for well, that. Well, it's also he's going to – you talk about a deal, long-term deal. That man – Right, and they would like, never, they would that, never extend him. Mm-hmm. Like, but everyone remembers that they had an agreement in principle to acquire Bryce Harper in 2018. Hmm. And, but that was Harper was a year away from like that was a rental. Like he yeah. was going to play two months and leave, and they weren't going to extend him. So um, hmm. that's not how this Soto thing would work, and and they just don't have the prospect capital. I mean, they've got some prospects that are starting to crack the top 100, but not near enough and then you know everyone's throwing out like Chaz McCormick and Jose Siri is like trade insight like, yeah they're fine players but like that's not going to get you Juan Soto like mm. like you can't 
trade like Chaz McCormick and a couple of like lower. <laughs> I don't think anything's gonna be anybody wants Soto. There's no deal that makes sense for both sides with that one because what it would cost to get like Well they'd have someone I think someone would have to take on Corbin's contract. Corbin or Strasburg's contract too is like a month. Yeah. Take but I mean, even if you do that, the amount of capital that you're giving up, it's like, how do you keep a contending window with Juan Soto when you gave up everything to get it? Yeah, I don't I mean, know. It, it'd have to be like the Dodgers. Or, it's really or, the Dodgers. It's like it. Or the, I mean, you know, Steve the Mets, Cohen, I guess. Steve Cohen's, yeah. you know, Steve Cohen. I would, I would say the Mets would probably be in there too. But yeah, it makes sense for very few teams. Yeah. And the Astros, it does not make sense for it all. Yeah. I would just, I think uh, America is waiting on Juan Soto and Ronald Acuna in the outfield. Personally, I think that is something that America. Well, look, would I mean, definitely... the Braves were the Braves were in on Correa. Were they? They were yes, they were in on Correa. They were pretty in on it. Um, Why do you were... think it didn't pan out? I didn't hear this. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know what the offer was, but I know they were in on him at the very end. Um, Especially with that deal, like that's a very Braves like thing—a one-year right. deal. And same Korea. thing. I wondered with the Astros, like, why didn't the Astros do this? Um, I don't. What mm. is Swanson's contract status? I, I don't that's what I'm wondering. And what if it's like a a Swanson thing, but I mean, <laughs> the Dancy Swanson experience, nice guy, good defense, but it's just, he's not going to hit at this level. Like it's just, it's not coming. The bat's not coming. He's just a fine. He's yeah. And I mean, I bet they were fine. Kinda, I, I bet they kind of would have done what the twins did, which is yeah. I mean, they traded kind of Falefa. And then, you know, two days later, Hey, Correa's here. Um, True. But yeah. But yeah, the Braves were, I mean, and I, I know, I don't know if that would have softened the blow of losing Freddie Freeman, um, but um, they were, they were in on it. Uh, I don't know how Atlanta's response would have been to that because, I mean, you just beat the Astros to win the World Series and Correa is a kind of divisive figure. I don't know how that would have played out in the PR front, bringing in Correa, moving on from Freeman. But the Freeman thing is a lot of folks, and that's kind of come out now, is like he didn't want to be a Brave at the end of the day. Like that was kind of – that that relationship was getting pretty bad. And you listen to Chipper Jones' interview about it, and I don't know. It seems like that 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 was a that was a bad situation over the course of like a year. Seemed like that was not gonna work long term, but it's it's tough. I don't know. You still got the ring. Still got the ring. It's flags all that matters, right? Flags fly forever. Flags fly forever. Um, we'll end on this. So, weirdly enough, the Angels are right there, uh, going back and forth with the Astros top of the AL West. The Mariners, a lot of folks thought, and then the Rangers. Maybe if like everything went right, they just spent a lot. So people were like, "Oh, are they ready?" It's like, well, they still don't have a lot of depth everywhere else. They just that was like step one in the jumpstart this rebuild was Simeon and uh, Seager, and Simeon has been uh, not good to say the least uh, to this point in the season. But um, when you look at the Angels roster, forty five OPS plus, huh? Like Like that is awful. Oh yeah, no, it's it's bad. I mean, bad, bad. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, the the West. It's is Taylor Ward going to keep being like the best player in baseball for like the next four months? I think mm. that has a big factor in it. I mean, you know, the have Angels, they had a series with the Angels yet? The Astros, yeah, they mm. opened the they opened the season with with four in Anaheim, and then they mm. came here for three. And I think the Astros went four and three against them. They're either okay. four and three or five and two against them, but. Trout was like still had a stomach bug the, for the season opening series, so he mm. didn't play one game and like was pretty hampered in the other two. So like they didn't, I don't think they saw him at full strength. Mm. Um, and Taylor Ward again wasn't doing what he's doing now. Mm. Um, I think if Ward keeps this up, you know, the Angels are owned by a guy that Artie Moreno, who if they are in contention at the deadline, mm. they will go all in. 
I think like they will be aggressive and go all in. They don't have the prospect capital to make it work. They could trade Joe Adele because I think if, as long as Taylor Ward keeps playing like this, I, I don't know where he's going to see the field. Um, and but, he hasn't been good when he has. Well, no, he, but he's tearing up AAA pitching, so he doesn't yeah. need to be in AAA. Um, I, I think, you know, that's going to be the interesting thing. Like, mm. if we get down to the deadline and it's still like the Angels are within two or three games of the division lead and like have a like and the wild card, like they're gonna they're gonna be aggressive. And if they add like, I mean, I don't know if they would do an interdivision trade with like would they go get Luis Castillo? Would they go get Frankie Montas? Mm. Like, would they go get another starter to like. Because I think they, their starters have held up relatively well. You know, Syndergaard's been good, but he's going to be – they're going to have to baby him with Tom, with coming off Tommy John. Otani's been much better as a pitcher than a hitter, and he's, his pitching's improved so much from last year. Mm. Lorenzen's been good. Detmers has struggled his last couple starts, and he threw a no-hitter like two weeks ago. Um, I, I think if they can get another starter, you know, their bullpen is quietly one of the better bullpens in baseball. Like, Iglesias mm. is a really good closer, and they've got – Loop to para, um, you know, Archie Bradley, guys, guys that have gotten big outs, you know, in big situations. So, I mean, I think on paper, they're built to, I wouldn't say challenge the Astros for the division, but like they're going to, I think they're going to hang around. Like, mm. barring, a, barring an injury to Trout, barring a Otani just completely cratering, um, you know, they're going to, they're going to hang around. So, um, I think it'll be interesting too because, like, we finally get to see Mike Trout and Shohei Otani play like meaningful games. Because I love watching them, but like, mm. there's a difference in watching them when the games mean nothing in August as opposed to like with a division on the line or like with a, you know, if they win this game, they go up a game in the division or they fall two back. Like, it's a that would be great just to see these two guys or three really with, I mean, we've seen Rendon playing big games before, but Trout and Otani to see them in like meaningful September baseball, I think would be great for the sport. Selfishly, it'd be great for me just to be able to watch it, but it'd be mm. great for the sport. and something that the sport needs to be honest with you, because like they, they did wonders last year with Otani, like marketing him, like making the all-star game all about him. And that was awesome. Mm. But like when the two best players in the sport, when the two most like talented guys, are never are, a they play on the west coast so a bunch of the country can't watch them mm. and b like when they're never in big games it's like it's tough to get traction but I, I i think getting these guys in the september and keeping them in the division hunt i, I think that would be really really good for baseball we shall see we shall see uh chandler what can the good folks check out from you across the houston chronicle this week yeah, I fly to Seattle later on today, and they're going to be uh, another nine-game, three-city road trip. It seems like the Astros have played a ton of those uh, lately, mm. but um, be there the whole time uh, at Chandler underscore Rome on Twitter and just uh, follow the – some say the most hated team in baseball, definitely the most polarizing team in baseball, certainly. Uh, they're uh, It's never boring. It's never boring covering them, and you can see the fruits of that labor uh, on HoustonChronicle.com. There you go. I'm right there with you with the Tennessee baseball team. So it's uh, there's the connection. Uh, I know what it's like to cover the villains of uh, a baseball uh, industry. Chandler, thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. We'll have to check back in again soon. All right. All right. That'll do it for part two here on the Friday, May 27th edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed Chandler Rome 
of the Houston Chronicle coming on this edition of the podcast. So thank you again to Chandler for coming on to talk all things Astros and a little college baseball. Give him a follow on Twitter and keep up with uh, all of his great work over at the Houston Chronicle today. Uh, If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you leave this show a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If that is how you are listening to today's feed, subscribe and like on our YouTube page, youtube.com, type in the Chase Homes Podcast. You'll find us there. Subscribe to the Sports Renaissance Man. Uh, That's me, sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Tweet at me at Chase double underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. And email the program at chasehomespodcast at gmail.com uh jam-packed show coming to you guys tomorrow uh so look out for three different parts uh to this podcast tomorrow so check that out right here on the chase most podcast here and the blue wire pod network uh that is it for me you guys have a great rest of your friday evening and i will talk to you all tomorrow uncle Derek, how'd i do Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.